we turn our attention to the Gospel of John, where we are still having dinner with Jesus, is that we are journeying through uh, the Gospel of John, and in particular, it was called the Upper Room Discourse, which is Jesus' words to his disciples on the night that he was, on the night that he was betrayed. To move into this this morning, I do also need to give credit to Kent Hughes um, for so many of his insights and also for a number of his illustrations that we're going to share with you this morning. John writes this in John chapter 15. He has encouraged his disciples. Jesus has encouraged his disciples with the truth saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He knows that they are troubled. He knows that they're disturbed about his departure. And Jesus encourages them and tells them that he has prepared a place for them. He also encourages them and says that he not only has prepared a place for them, but he has prepared a place in them that the Holy Spirit will indwell them. And he gives them shocking news that one of them would betray Jesus, and in fact that all of them would eventually abandon him and would abandon him that night. And we come to this passage as the discourse continues, and this is the most disturbing I think, truth of all. Here is what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Father, do pray that you would send your spirit to teach us by your word that you would encourage us, that you would sober us to the realities of this world, the realities of following you, that that would give us encouragement and perseverance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1926, there was a young correspondent who was a recent graduate of Harvard who was working in China. Again, the year was 1926. In the course of his job, he sought an interview with a shadowy Bolshevik figure named Michael Borodin. Borodin was, at the time, the cause of considerable chaos in Western trade. The young reporter 
located him in Canton and presented his introduction to the Russians' Vietnamese secretary, who would later be known to the world as Ho Chi Minh. And he was ushered into the Russians' presence, and the American was surprised by Borodin's reception. Here is what he recounts. He said, I found my hand being pumped by a burly, six-footer clad in a crumpled white jacket and trousers with a shock of unruly black hair, a neat handlebar mustache, and a booming voice that bade strangers welcome in, in heavily accented but fluent in idiomatic American English. Seated with Borodin, the reporter's mind sped through the very little information he had about the man. Borden had served time in a Glasgow jail, and earlier he taught school in Indiana and in Chicago, and he had been handpicked by Lenin for this job. Eagerly, the new reporter began the interview and asking him questions about the realism of Borden's goals, but in a very short while, the tables were turned, and the Russian began to press the attack against him. And this is what he said. You forget, young man, that I am not here for my health, or I would not be working in this barbarous heat. I don't spend my time at the bars and the races like the English and French. I am not interested in a career or fortune like you Americans. I serve an ideology, and with an ideology, it is not numbers that count. It is dedication. You Americans would not understand that. I have lived in your country, and I know what goes on. You concentrate on comfort and personal success. Uncomfortable with the Russians' rebukes, the young journalist then tried to shift the conversation and divert the attention. And so he said to him, "Uh, do you enjoy your work in China, Mr. Borodin, he asked. Enjoy, he echoed scornfully. A bourgeois question. It is not a matter of whether we enjoy our work here. The work is necessary, and that is all that counts. It is, of course, far from the friends, the concerts, and the theater that mean so much in Moscow. But long ago, I made up my mind that communism alone held an answer for the world. Nothing else matters. Does that answer your question? And so he challenged the young reporter, saying, You Americans are interested in career and the pursuit of fortune. You concentrate on the comfort of you concentrate on comfort and on personal success. He was writing this in the conversation occurred in 1929, 1926 rather. Some fifty years later, fifty years before now, an author by the name of Herbert Hendon wrote in a book entitled The Age of Sensation, a a psychoanalytic exploration of youth in the 1970s. And his observation of culture in the 1970s was this. It is no accident that at the present time, the dominant trends in psychoanalysis include the rediscovery of narcissism, for the society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism, that increasingly reduces all relationships to the question, what am I getting out of it? So, 
50 years after Borden's assessment that Americans are just interested in the pursuit of a career and success and on personal success, 50 years before now, author identifies, he's saying, the, the characteristic trait of American society marked by self-interest and egocentrism that reduces all relationships to the question of what am I getting out of it? Well, how does the church fare in the midst of that? Well, the same posture and attitude that is so infused our culture also has penetrated people's attitudes towards the church and attitudes towards Christianity and what Jesus is supposed to do for them. Many think that Christianity exists only to make us healthy and wealthy and to bring our lives smooth sailing. You know, that is the attitude of many when they select a church. What am I going to get out of this? And so many think that Christianity, or the only reason to evaluate Christianity or to consider Christianity, is because this might be a way to gain God's favor and gain increased success in the world. And so be a Christian and maybe life will go better for you. Be a Christian because if God designed the world, then his plan would help your life go better. Be a Christian in order to get ahead in the world. But Jesus, with his disciples, clarifies what Christians should expect as a follower of Christ as they relate to the world and as they have interactions with the world. And in short, what Jesus teaches his disciples is simply this, is that Christians who follow Jesus must expect to be hated. As I said, this is one of the most shocking truths in this passage. Christians who follow Jesus Christ must expect to be hated. We're going to look at two aspects of this. We're going to spend a considerable time examining why it is that Jesus says the world hates Christians and him. And then subsequently, how Christians are called by Jesus to relate to the world. So he says, Christians who follow Jesus must expect to be hated. And Jesus describes this because of the way that the world relates to him and relates to Christians. He teaches them, he says, the world hates exposure. Verses 18 and 21, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. What Jesus is identifying is that in his life, through his word, through his character, through his works, it exposed how sinful the religious establishment was, how sinful the Jewish leaders were, and they hated him for that. That his complete beauty and his complete purity revealed and exposed their ugliness. You might have had this experience in your own house. You know, if you have a house that has white carpets or light-colored carpets, and you labor to keep them clean, and you regularly vacuum those white carpets to keep them clean, and then one time, you know, so kids, maybe a toy or a dog bone goes under the couch, and you need to get under there to get it, and so you lift up the couch to look, and what has happened to the white carpet that is under the couch comparison compared to the white carpet in the room? It is brilliantly white, Right? It is stunningly white, and particularly there is a distinction of purity and cleanliness between where the couch comes down and the edge where everyone's feet and shoes are, or where their feet are if you don't have shoes in your house. And so when you have this bright patch of ultra-clean carpet before you, what do you do? You cover it back up, 
right? Because you don't want people to come over and think that you're, what you thought was your clean carpet, you don't want it exposed that your carpet's actually filthy if they can see what something that is clean is actually clean. So you cover it up. And it happens in life, too, is that the world hates exposure. Is that when something comes in that exposes, that is truly pure, that is truly beautiful, the response is we want to cover it up or get rid of it. And unfortunately, it's a pattern that occurs in people's lives and relationships. Is that when a person, maybe of upstanding character, joins a group of people who are less upstanding, maybe more more experienced in ways of the world, take your pick, what happens? You know, that person joins maybe a new squadron, or they go to school, or they go off to college, and the person goes, and they're, they're pure, they're innocent, they're maybe a bit naive. You know, they're not edu- as educated or experienced in the smut of life, and they don't always get the references when there's coarse or crude or sexual joking going on of the sort. They don't always get those things. They don't get the illusions. They don't get the references. What does the group do with a person like that? What does the group do? Well, they start trying to make the person blush, right? They start to try to make the person feel uncomfortable. And they want to do different things, you know, to maybe blow their mind or to push them into new experiences or say, have you tried this? You ought to really, you, you ought to really try this or you, you ought to do this. And eventually, after they have removed the purity or the innocence of that person, the response is, yeah, you're no different than the rest of us. You're no different. All because the innocence and the purity and the beauty exposed uncleanliness, exposed a filthiness that the world would rather not deal with. The world hates exposure. It is much easier to destroy that which is clean than to accept that which is filthy and seek to change it. There was a missionary who said that there was a tribal chief in this case it was a woman, who came and visited their mission station. And hanging outside of the station on the tree was a mirror that the missionary had. And the chief came up and she happened to look into the mirror and she saw her own reflection in the mirror with its hideous paint and with her hideous paint on her face and the evil features and the the scary way that she saw herself. And so as she gazed at her own terrifying countenance, she, she jumped back from what she saw in horror. And she said, mind you, it's an animistic culture. She said, who is that, who is that horrible-looking person inside of that tree? The missionary said, it, it's not the tree. It's that there's a glass that's reflecting your own face. And the chief wouldn't believe it until she was holding the mirror in her own hand. And at which point she said, I must have this this glass. Um, How much will you sell it to me for? And the missionary said, I'm I'm not selling it to you. I don't want it. I I want it. I don't want to sell it. And she begged and she pleaded until the missionary eventually capitulated, sold it to the tribal chief, at which point she took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it make these ugly faces at me again. And she threw it down and broke it to pieces is that that was the same reaction that the world had to Jesus Christ and the same reaction to many of his followers because the world hates exposure. So don't be surprised and don't compromise.
because nothing good comes from eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing good comes from knowing evil. For the world and darkness hates exposure. The second reason why Jesus gives why Christians should expect hatred from the world, he says in verse 19, is that the world is not your home if you're a follower of Jesus. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, in John's usage, the way that he refers to the world is that the world refers to the sinful world system. And in John's usage, the world hates Christians because Christians and Jesus are not a part of their system. And the hatred and the persecution is not always violent. And just to be clear, not every godly Christian is persecuted or hated, especially in the United States. And it is absolutely true that not all non-Christians hate Christians. To suggest that would be to be absurd. But the system of the world always does. The system of the world always hates Christians and hates Jesus. And there is a hostility to it. There is an indifference. You know, at times the, that, the hatred comes in terms of indifference. At times it comes in terms of exclusion, treating Christians as non-entities who don't have a voice. And yes, at times persecution in the world and hatred of the world is at times violent. The word here for persecution means it's used in terms of a pack of ravenous dogs hunting down a rabbit. To, to hunt after, to chase after it. We've largely been insulated and isolated in America, but in the, in the 20th century, there were more Christians who were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 1900 years combined. More Christians martyred last century than in the previous 1900 years combined. The USA has been uniquely preserved. History would indicate that the insulation and isolation from this side of persecution that Christians have experienced in America, history would indicate that it's not going to last. And rather, that Christians should expect persecution and hatred because the world is not your home. So the world hates exposure. The world is not your home. And the reason, most of all, that Jesus indicates why to expect this hatred comes because the world hates Jesus. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What Jesus is identifying here, and he goes on to say, is he said, the reason why they hate me is because they don't know my father. If they knew my father, they would know me. If they loved my father, they would love me. But they don't know me, and they don't know my father. And he goes on to say, the day is coming when people will kill you. He's identifying that some of his followers will be killed. They will kill you, and people will do so thinking that they are offering service to God. Jesus' argument here is one from the greater to the lesser. He says, if they hated me, they will hate you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And historically, this has proven true in the history of the world. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a 
pastor in Germany, was executed at the end of the war in a German concentration camp. He wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering of Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And he says this, such persecution will be proportionate to the extent of one's identification with Christ. That if you identify with Christ, then your suffering will increase. Why should we expect persecution? Because as Jesus says, the world hates exposure. It's not your home, and the world hates Jesus himself. Now, before we go on, I need to give a word here about persecution and clarify biblically what it is and what it's not, and the nature of it in the life of a Christian. On the one hand, the absence of persecution may indicate that something is wrong with your faith. If you're not experiencing any of what Jesus is talking about, it may indicate that something is wrong with the practice of your Christian faith. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller recounts and gives teaching on the story of the prodigal son. The parable that Jesus taught where there was the younger son who fled, spent his inheritance on wild living, lost all of his money, squandered it all away, and he came back to the father, humbled and humiliated, and the father showers him with love and accepts him back. In his book, he also recounts the story of the older brother, the older brother who was the one who was, did everything right, the one who stayed at home, the one who did everything that his father asked him to do. McKellar reveals that this older brother was also estranged from his father because the relationship was based upon his performance and his obedience. And it wasn't based upon the love of the father. And he draws out the implication of this for our own Christian life. Keller writes this, he says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. So the world hated Jesus. The religious system hated Jesus. But there are many people who were attracted to Jesus. He goes on to say, However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, not the licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal. That can only mean one thing, Keller concludes. He says, if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring, or I would add, or living, the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think or like to imagine. And so the absence of persecution may indicate that something is wrong with your life and with your faith. It may indicate that you are one who is estranged from God because you live a life of moral obedience out of obligation to God as opposed to living a life that has experienced his love and living a life that wants to honor him. 
but it may also indicate a problem because your Christian faith is indistinguishable from everybody else, everyone else who's not a Christian, that you have somehow compromised between a godly life and a sinful life, that you have determined that you're going to practice your faith in a way that it is acceptable to a hostile world that you're going to practice your faith in a way that the world will accept and that the system of the world will accept. And if you do so, you do so at the cost of your own life. And Scripture would urge you that what you need to do instead is you need to repent and become a follower of Jesus Christ. For you cannot have both follow the world and follow Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. It cannot be one or the other. Now for others, Jesus said the reason why the absence of persecution may indicate that something's wrong is because for others, Jesus said, be in the world, but not of the world. And the reason why there's no challenge and tension between you and the world is because the practice of your Christian faith is, has become is that you have decided that you are going to withdraw yourself from interaction of the world. Is that you are not in the world, you have been withdrawn from it, you are out of the world. But Jesus says the characteristics of his followers is that they are in the world, though they are not of it. And so if you're one who has decided that you're going to practice your faith by choosing what is easy and comfortable by withdrawing from the challenge of this world, you need to repent and follow Jesus not into what is easy or comfortable, but follow Jesus into making disciples in the broken and hard places that Jesus himself has gone. Those who follow Jesus, follow Jesus. And you cannot claim to follow Jesus if you refuse to follow Jesus. You cannot claim to follow Jesus if you abandon the things that Jesus repeatedly calls his followers to be and to do. So the absence of persecution in your life may indicate that something is wrong. But on the flip side, the presence of persecution may not indicate that something is right. It may not be an indication of your faithfulness and God's blessing upon you. Unfortunately, I am sure you have met some hate-filled Christians I've also known some professing Christians who profess to be Christians who believe that persecution was the true sign of being a Christian and the true sign of someone who was really following Christ. And so they were arrogant and obnoxious and loud, and they were arrogant and obnoxious and loud in their place in the world. And they interpreted resistance to their being arrogant, obnoxious, and loud. They interpreted resistance as persecution for being a Christian. And the answer is, no, you were experiencing persecution for being a jerk, right? And the issue here is that the presence of persecution isn't indicating that something is right. That the message of Christ is offensive, but his followers themselves are not to be. So you've got these two dynamics. One, the absence of persecution may indicate that something is wrong, but the presence of persecution may not indicate that something is right. Nonetheless, what is the teaching of Scripture? The teaching of Scripture is this, is that persecution and hatred from the world should be expected. Jesus states it clearly, as does the rest of the New Testament. It should be expected. Paul writes to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what should be your expectation? The expectation should be that you will be persecuted. It may not happen, but that should be the expectation and understanding so that you're not surprised when it does happen. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake. Why? Because you have been a follower of Christ. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes, Let no one be moved by these afflictions. You're going through a lot of stuff, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul says to every one of the churches, for people who are becoming followers of Christ, what you should expect in your relationship with the world is that your relationship with Jesus will not bring prosperity and success. What you should expect is that your relationship with Jesus will bring hostility because the world hates Jesus. Peter said the same thing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're going through a trial because of your faith, don't be surprised. This isn't strange. This isn't abnormal. Actually, it's normal. But rejoice, he continues, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad and be glad when he is revealed. Unfortunately, too many Christians have responded to the hatred of the world with hatred, right? Too many Christians have responded to evil done against them with evil. But the distinctive mark of Christians throughout history has been to respond to hatred and to evil and to respond to it with love and to love your enemies and to love those who hate you and to love those who persecute you. So here's what Jesus says in this specific passage related to his disciples about what he what we should expect for how Christians, we saw how the world relates to Christians, how Christians are to relate to the world. First off, Jesus is telling them, as you relate to the world, do not be surprised by the hostility of the world. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. When this happens, don't think, oh my gosh, I'm doing something wrong. God doesn't love me anymore. I've got to get out of here. I've got to leave. Jesus says, no, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Don't be surprised. But then he goes on to say, well, what else do you do? Do you withdraw? Do do you hide back? No, he tells them, when the helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. How are Christians to relate to the world? By bearing witness about Jesus Christ. By sharing what Jesus has done in their own life, what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have experienced. You know, the nature of a witness in a trial is that a witness is not the defense attorney making a case. And a witness is not the prosecuting attorney who's trying to come up with every possible answer and every possible permutation and every possible defense and answer to every possible question. No, what a witness does is a witness says, well, I was there, and this is what happened. This is what I saw, and this is what I experienced. And those who are followers of Christ, you're not called to be a prosecuting attorney or a defensive attorney. You're called to be a witness for Christ. What that means is to say, I'm a follower of Christ. Why? 
Because he has granted me forgiveness. That the guilt and shame that I've carried in my life, he has removed. He is the one who has taken my shame and covered me with, with dignity and with beauty. He is the one who has, you know, I, I follow Jesus because it is through him that I have this experience, this real personal experience of knowing the love of God and knowing his love and his mercy and his grace. I just want to share his love and mercy and grace with other people. Those who follow Jesus are witnesses to what Jesus has done in their own life. They're just sharing what they have known and what they've experienced. But where are these people? Where are these people? Where are these followers of Jesus in the face of persecution? The young reporter in China saw Borodin on another occasion. And at this time, the Bolshevik, the Bolshevik was a bit more contemplative. And in the course of their conversation, they began discussing Christianity. After a long silence, Borodin said, still gazing out the window, he began murmuring to himself, and he said, You know, I used to read the New Testament. Again and again, I read it. It is the most wonderful story ever told. That man, Paul, he was a real revolutionary. I take off my hat to him. And he made a symbolic gesture, his long black hair falling momentarily over his face. And there was a long silence. And then suddenly Borodin whirled around, his face contorted with fury, and the reporter says, he shook his fist in my face and he said, but where do you find him today? Answer me that. Where do you find him? Where? 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 Then furiously and triumphantly he said, you can't answer me. But we can. For followers of Christ like Paul, have been in China, who were martyred for their faith, who were true to Jesus to the end. Those like Hudson Taylor, those that followed in his footsteps like John and Betty Stam, who witnessed to their faith until their death at the hand of Borodin's followers. And as John and Betty Stam were being led to be executed, there was a Chinese man who ran up to the communist authorities and he began to plead with them to let these two go, let John and Betty Stam go. They talked about how much good they were doing and how much of a benefit they were to society, and at which the communist authority immediately ordered that this shopkeeper's house be searched. And in it they found a Bible and they found a Christian hymnal. And so he was brought out with John and he was, head, and he was beheaded in front of the crowd. Where are these followers? They are on every continent. They are those whose lives are not focused on what I can get out of the situation, those whose lives are not focused on comfort and personal success, but they are those who follow the one 
and the one who alone is worth living and worth dying for. And they are on every continent. And today, I believe they are also here in Southern Maryland. Some of these followers are suffering persecution, others are not. But for all of them, their lives speak about Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy and his grace and his truth. And so to those who follow Jesus, we are called to witness to Jesus Christ before a hostile world. Do not be surprised, but follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, quite frankly, I would prefer that passages such as these would not be in the Bible. And Lord, I imagine that there are some who've gathered here today and you say, well, why did I come to church to hear this? I want to hear something that's uplifting. I want to hear something that's going to be personally beneficial to me. And the reality of this is disturbing. And yet, Lord, your word is beneficial. And your word is truth. And Lord, even though we live in a world that would pursue after many of the other comforts in this life, there is one thing worth living for, and that is for you, because you, Lord Jesus, are the Lord of all creation. You're the one who would have had every right to destroy this world, who have every right to destroy the hatred and wickedness of this world, but instead, Lord, you entered into the darkness. For you so love the world, Father. God, you so love the world that you gave your only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that they would be adopted as your child, filled with your love, your freedom, your joy, your beauty. So, Lord Jesus, may we as your followers follow you. And Lord, I do pray for those here today who have been living for the things of this world, that you would draw them to yourself, to the beauty of Jesus Christ, who alone is the one thing, the one person who is worth living and dying for. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.